This is sort of important and will set the stage for um, the rest of our study in 2 Corinthians. And you could think of 1 Corinthians like this. Paul is correcting a church. That's 1 Corinthians. Paul is correcting a church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's correcting the problems that are happening in the church. 2 Corinthians is much different. 2 Corinthians shows how God shapes a man or a woman. So you could sort of say how God corrects a man or a woman, but, but it's more than correction. It's forming and molding and shaping. And so 2 Corinthians sort of doesn't have a, a, a set pattern. It's more of what the Lord is doing in Paul's life. In fact, you're going to sort of have the cover of Paul's life lifted off and you see right into his heart and his mind the man who established all these churches around the Mediterranean Sea. This man who was a killer of the Christians and became a Christian himself and gave it all up willingly and gladly to advance the gospel around the world. And we're sort of standing here today because God used that man. And we're going to see the authentic, real, raw heart and feelings of a man who gave his life for the Lord. Of course, the Lord gave his life for him. <laughs> and so what could he do? And so really, you, you sort of need to know uh, some things that have happened. And you only, this isn't written down in one place. In order to understand 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you need to know this. Uh, and again, you piece this together throughout 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And this is, that's this. In 1 Corinthians 16, right the last time we taught in Corinthians, in verse 5 through 7, do you remember this? Paul promised to see the Corinthians after he took a trip through Macedonia. If you don't remember that, that's okay. Go back and you could read that. But Paul changed his plans. And you're going to see that today in 2 Corinthians 1, 15 through 16. And decided to see them first on his way to Macedonia and then on his way back to give them what he calls a second benefit, a second meeting, a time of refreshing twice. So you'll see that today in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. But he also made the first visit on the way to Macedonia, but it was painful for him and the Corinthians because why? It was full of confrontation. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians 2.1, he said, I would not come again to you in sorrow. So also then, after this visit, and the reason I'm telling you this is because it's germane to what he writes. You can't really understand what he's writing until you understand this. Sometime after a visit there, Paul or maybe even a representative, was actually insulted and uh, spoken against and hurt, if you can say hurt, by someone from sort of like the anti-Paul sect of the church. And you're going to read about that in 2 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 7. And because the first visit was so unpleasant, 
And, you know, it was hurtful and there was confrontation. It seems as if Paul, on his way back from Macedonia, abandoned his plan to go and see them. And then we know that Titus was sent from Ephesus to Corinth with what's called a severe letter. You could see that in 2 Corinthians 2. And Titus was there to also collect the contribution for the church down in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians didn't give it, they should have. But Paul then left for Ephesus and suffered some major affliction in Asia. And then he went to Macedonia and among other things, he organized that collection again And later from Macedonia, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, and it was around 56 AD when he did that. And the reason I'm telling you that is, think about what he's saying here. And and there's, you know, it's sort of sketchy, not sketchy, but the timeline I gave you is not set in stone. Many people have different views about when some of those events happened. But here's the point. Paul originally, as he was dealing with the Corinthians, said, I'm going to come and visit you. And because of a lot of different factors, we'll see in this letter, he didn't do it. And maybe, and probably, you know, he was guided by the Lord in that. But people got their feelings hurt. Sound familiar? And because they got their feelings hurt, they started talking about Paul. Saying he was not a man of his word. Saying he uh, didn't hold up to his end, saying he was fickle, saying he really wasn't following the Lord because the Lord would never do such a thing. Despite the fact that we know Paul made plans, as he prayed about it, to go into one area in the book of Acts, and the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. Remember that? And so the point, I guess, as we start out this book is you need to know that Paul is under heavy attack. And it's not from the so-called non-Christian world. It's from the church or from a sect within the church that he himself established because we know in Acts chapter 18, he spent a year and a half with blood, sweat, and tears pouring out into these people. And that's the backdrop of this letter. That's the backdrop of this letter. So I want you to think about something. Have you ever been depressed or overwhelmed because someone in your circle or what you thought was your circle has made comments about you or what you're doing or the agenda that you have or your life or your family's life in a way that you felt was really hurtful? Have you ever had that happen? Paul had lots of things going on, not just uh, these things that people were saying. If you turn, and you, you don't have to, I'll read it to you. If, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he describes what he and his gospel mates who were sharing the gospel around the modern world, had gone through. Look at this. Are they Hebrews, verse 22? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more and labor is more abundant. Look at this. I worked like 
a dog is what he's saying. I don't think he was complaining. I think he was just being truthful. In stripes above measure. I mean, this guy was striped. You getting that? Could you imagine getting whipped for the cause of Christ? In labors more, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. Isn't that fascinating? In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. (laughs) What kept him going? He loved these people. That's the point. The people, the very people who were complaining and murmuring and speaking against and gossiping and all the other things that come with that. And who, right? That's a stressful thing. What kept him going? He loved them. Just as a side note, I always laugh when I read that because the one thing that I would have really hated to have happened to me happened to him, and he doesn't even mention it here, when he gets bitten by that snake. That one gets me, man. I just don't want to be bitten by a snake. He didn't even mention that. That was just, that was nothing. The other stuff. So against that backdrop, here he comes, and he's writing this second letter to a people who he's ministering to and has a love that's higher than an earthly love. That's what I want you to see, because an earthly love would shut down on these people. Do you get that? An earthly love would say, wait a second, you're talking bad against me? How could you, how would you dare talk bad against me? I'm the one who established this church. I need honor and dignity and respect. And so I'm just going to cut you off because you're talking about me. See, that's earthly love. But the love of God keeps going Because the love he has for the people that's been given to him supernaturally, God bless you, by the Lord. That's powerful, folks. And yet, in this, he becomes real and raw with us. He talks about his hurts and struggles and feelings. He's real. He's not just some smiley little doll that walks around like a Christian and says, everything's great, everything's fine. No, he has real struggles. And yet, he presses on. Watch this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, or in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's a messenger. He's a sent one. He's a set-apart one. He's one in the office of apostle who has actually witnessed and seen the risen Lord. You get that, right? He saw him on the road to, D- to Damascus. Yeah. <laughs> 
I always say the road to Emmaus right there, but it's Damascus. Yeah. So I had to think about it there for a minute. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he knows it's by the will of God. In fact, he comments in other books. How could the Lord pick me? I'm paraphrasing. I'm a killer, a murderer, the chief of sinners. And yet God chose me, and I responded to that call. I know this is the will of God for my life. Wow. Think about that, what he's saying, the will of God for my life. He's never been more content, joyful, happy with all of all these things going on that I've read to you. He knows it's the will of God. See, that is when you know you're content. When you're walking according to the will of God. You don't have to chase the kingdom that's yours. You know, the white picket fence and the hobbies and all that. Are those things okay? Of course, but they don't, they're not your idol. You're content with just the presence of the Lord walking in the will of God. That's powerful, man. You can survive when things aren't going so well. Not just survive, but thrive. You can keep moving towards people who are ugly towards you because you're solid and stable and set because you know, right, you know you're right where God has you. That's powerful. And he recognizes this, and as he's writing to this Corinthian church who has lots of problems and who have, you know, done these things to him, here he comes. He always has people around him, doesn't he? Timothy, his young understudy, and isn't that interesting? How do we disciple people? We disciple people by bringing them along with us for the journey. And that's him. He's discipling this Timothy, and Timothy's really helping to the church of God, which is at Corinth. But this isn't just a letter for Corinth. They must have passed this around the churches in the area of Achaia, which is the Roman province of which Corinth is the capital they must have passed this around in the home churches, this letter that you're reading. Isn't that interesting? That's what these were for. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this almost every time we get to a Pauline letter. You'll never know peace till you really understand God's grace. And it's made an impact in your heart and life. And Paul knew it. God's riches at Christ's expense, that's what some people say or may say about what grace is. It's also God's undeserved, unmerited favor. Why does God love us? Because, period, he just does. <laughs> it's unmerited favor. He lavishes uh, these things on uh, us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to commune with us, God Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize this. When we surrender our lives to Christ, the blood of Christ gives us peace with God. That's Romans. But also, the peace that all of us are looking for comes from God. The peace from God, and that's in Philippians. There's this peace that God gives you. It's supernatural peace. But it only comes after you've, been, uh, you've made peace with God. And actually, that's a terrible way of saying it because he's made the peace through the cross. And you'll never get real peace 
till you understand the grace that happened at the cross. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, or our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, folks, I got to tell you, when people talk about me or you, you know it. I mean, they just talk about you, and you know it. You've caught them or whatever, you know, it's been relayed to you, and you know it. What, what does it do to your heart and your, your anger level and your bitterness and your frustration and your whatever emotion you want to say there or your joy? What does it do to your joy when somebody talks about you or says something or misrepresents something about you and they tell it to a crowd or whatever? I got to tell you, I don't generally, after that happens in my flesh, I, I don't generally then just get my pen out and write a doxology of praise. I want you to see that. Paul's given us an amazing lesson here. I I, I just, you know, I don't feel like when I find out that's happening, I just, in my flesh, I just don't feel like coming to church. I don't feel like sitting down and, you know, reading day 14 of the, uh, you know, two-year Bible plan. What I feel like doing is striking back, just being honest, in my own flesh. And here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, here this man is, who's given his life for this church. They don't even know how much he loves them, and they've been talking about him, and it's struggling. I mean, it's, it's tense, and it hurts, and, you know, there's got to be some uh, flickers of anger there. Or there, Here's what he does. He sits down at his desk, and he writes out a praise to God in his letter to the Corinthians. It's astounding to me. And it tells us something, that we're to be people of praise. There's a couple places where this happens. Here, it's sort of like Paul uh, is uh, uh, blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for present realities. But in the book of Ephesians, he does it, and it seems as if in that book... He is writing about past certainties of all the things that the Lord has accomplished. And then in Peter, Peter actually sort of gives one of these bursts of praise in one of his books. And it seems to be that that one is for future occurrences. Isn't that interesting? See, the Lord has our past taken care of. He's right there in the present and our future is mapped out in the Lord. We're going to live with him and rule and reign for a thousand years. He's going to come and make all things right at the end of that period, the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to reside with him forever in glory. Our future's mapped out. And so it seems like the New Testament has uh, these doxologies that map out all these things. And here are the current realities. What are the current realities for Paul that's also the current reality for you? So whether you're pressed together, shaken, grieving, angry, mad, these are all things that 
or sad and just go on with all these things, overwhelmed, you feel like waves have been hitting you, whether of anxiety or grief or whatever, whatever it is, look at this. Paul says, and he can say it because he's been doing it in his whole life, he's one that's been there, sit down and praise. Remind yourself of who God is. Watch this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing he wants you to know is God is a Father. You really and I really need to remember this. God is a Father. And the one way in which he could have you reconciled to him for all eternity so that, Romans 3 tells us, he could be both the just one punish sin, and be the justifier, the one who actually takes the punishment himself, is he gives up his son. (laughs) See, the point, I think, is whatever you're going through, and you are, as I look around the room, I know some of your stories, and my story too, and we're going through things. The one thing that we could always bless the Lord for we could, a burst of praise could come out of our lives. This is a father, my father, our father, because we've been put into his family because of what he did, giving up his own son for our benefit. Wow. There's a praise. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who is this father? Don't you want to know? Who is this father? And you do know, but he's the father of mercies. Now, don't just skip by that. He's giving him a burst of praise in his present predicament as he's feeling sort of cruddy inside. Yeah, you ever, time out. (laughs) You ever sort of have something like this happen, whether it be somebody talking about you or a boss at work or a situation, and you know, you're just not walking in the spirit, and you just sort of get that lump right here. You know what I'm talking about? And maybe you get angry or you get stressed about something, and you can actually feel whatever the chemicals are. They're just pulsing in and out of your body. And, you, you, you know, anybody have this happen? All right. Well, and, 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 and you, you know, your bedtime's 11 o'clock, and you just go, and you, as soon as you hit the pillow, you just know. I'm not going to sleep, am I? And you just know. I mean, you just, you just, you just know. And, you know... 11.30 comes and, you know, nothing, 12, you get a book out, you turn the, right? And it's just pulse, and you just, you're worrying and you're thinking. And instead of doing what Paul did, sitting down at the desk and giving an anthem of praise, we just worry about all the things that we don't need to worry about. He's the God of all mercies. What does that mean? He's a father who's the God of all mercies. He gave up his son, and he's the father of mercy. Now, don't blow by the words. Mercy means this, withholding from you and me what we do deserve. Withholding from you and me what we do deserve. And folks, the Bible tells us that we deserve spiritual death. We deserve death. And God can withhold that from you by the, and does withhold that from you by the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's a doxal, that's a, that's a burst of praise. 
Instead of maybe, you know, surfing the channels or reading that book about, you know, the Revolutionary War or whatever at night and just letting all the endorphins or whatever, I guess they're not endorphins, but the, the bad toxic things that pop through our, our body when we're stressed or angry, why not sit down in a time of prayer and praise for God who is so merciful, all the things. Do you sometimes, do you do this? Maybe this is healthy, maybe it isn't, but I think it is healthy in some ways, as long as you don't dwell on it, because the Bible says, move forward, look towards the upward call of Jesus Christ, and some people can just dwell in their past sin and never get over it, but sometimes I think it's healthy, at least it is for me. When I look back (laughs) and think of some of the things that I've participated in in my life, and that God would withhold the penalty for me. That's a praise. That's a praise. It seems then to wipe out whatever that situation is that I'm all worried about or struggling about. He's the God of mercy. But not only that, he's the God of all comfort. And here's where you got to know language, although I don't know it. I just look it up. And this is a beautiful word. Here's the God of all comfort. We serve the God of all comfort. Now, in the Latin, which this is not written in, it's written in Greece, or Greek, Greece, Greek. In Greek, it's paraklesis. By the way, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. So it's this comfort that you receive by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But in Latin, it is a word that's sort of like fort like a fort, like Fort whatever, McHenry, or I don't know, whatever, you know, didn't, wasn't he a baseball player for us? But, but anyway, a fort, what happens in a fort? When you get in a fort, you become, watch this, brave. And that's what this word means. This isn't just God being sympathetic towards you, you know, like, like if you're hurting or struggling, Comfort here doesn't just mean God comes and gives you a piece of candy and says, sit on the couch and just relax. That's not what this word is. It does include that, but it has something more. It's that God is going to fill you up to bravery. Isn't that interesting? Because what happens when you get into a difficult situation? What happens? You start to, man, I can't believe they said that about me. You know what living the Christian life takes? Relational courage. And God supplies it. Relational courage. What does the Bible say about when, when somebody has something against a brother or sister? It says, hey, put, don't, don't go give your offerings. Run out of the, the place where you're worshiping and get it right with your brother or sister. Remember that part? And if they don't listen to you, bring a couple elders with you. And if they don't listen to you after that, give them over to Satan. You know the scriptures. But watch. People now in America especially, they don't want that, man. I'm my own island unto myself. I'm pulling myself up up by my bootstraps. You do your thing. I'll do my thing as long as the two doesn't meet. We're just going to leave each other alone. That's what we do. We'll say hi and be nice. But we don't really care about each other because I don't want to impact you and you shouldn't impact me. That's how America lives. And yet the church is, we're a body. And when somebody's wronged us, the Bible says that we're to go to them and talk about it. Doesn't mean you have to knock them over the head, but go talk about it. That takes relational courage, folks. 
By the way, I always say this now during this, love covers a multitude of sins, guys and gals. If somebody sits in your seat, you don't really need to have a, you know, a drag-down, knockout meeting with them because they sat in your pew seat. Love covers a multitude of sins. And I could say more about the donuts, you know, and all that sort of thing. But, but you get it. So, so look, you're praising the Lord because he's filling you up with bravery. In fact, uh, he, he comforts us and nurtures us. In Isaiah 66, it compares his love for us like a mother for a child, too. Isn't that interesting? You get all the different angles of comfort right there in that word. He comforts us in all our tribulation. Now, you know this, right? If you're a Christian, John 16, says that if you're living the, your life for Christ, you will have tribulation. Uh, don't believe the lie of TV evangelists who say, just come to Christ and everything's going to be great. Well, depends on what you mean by great. <laughs> it is going to be great because you're always going to know the Lord and to commune with the Lord and to be fellowshipping with the Lord, but all your circumstances aren't going to improve or be great and you're going to have all this stuff. No, the Bible says you're going to be in tribulation because people are going to hate you. (laughs) Sounds like a great deal, huh? But it is because you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because some people don't even want to hear the very thing that saves them. And so there's going to be this hate, and it says he's going to comfort you in your tribulation. He's going to nurture you and make you brave and bring you up and make you strong like a fort that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. You you see one great way. There's several things you could say about this verse. I want you to see this. There's one great way in which God gives you comfort. Did you catch it? Through his people. God gives comfort through his people. Are you catching that? You and I are to be people who are ministers who are ministering comfort. Gracefully and mercifully, but also gracefully. We're people who, yes can come in and, and, and meet with people. And we can sympathize with them, right? Oh, man, I'm, and, and, and the Bible tells us there's a time for that. Just be with people. Cry with people who are crying. Hug people who need hug. Love people who need love. You don't need to just bash them every time with, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And yet, the Bible says we don't want people... God doesn't want people just to stay there. There's a process to help, help people move forward, not, not in an inappropriate way, but an appropriate way, moving forward to the upward call of the prize of Jesus Christ. That's what we're to do. And God uses us to comfort other people. Isn't that great? We had this little band of roving singers take a little old bus two days before Christmas and go around to people who couldn't get out or haven't been out or whatever and sing to them Christmas carols. I had one guy called me yesterday (laughs) to tell me about that event, which I didn't attend, and uh, uh, these folks did an amazing job and said it was like a tsunami of grace 
That's, that's the quote. He goes, you can't, I can't tell you what that did for us. Comfort. Giving your life up. By the way, folks, uh, in your tribulation, uh, one of the reasons that you are in this tribulation is that you could identify and experience and feel what another is feeling so that you could keep humble and teachable and, and uh, willing to go and serve somebody so that they would be comforted. That's one of the purposes for your tribulations. Did you see that? Now, there's many reasons for tribulation and suffering and persecution that's not the only one. In fact, if you've traveled with us through Job, you'd know that. And suffering for the Christian is not a bad word. In Philippians 3.10, it tells us that suffering is one of the arenas in which we get to know Jesus better and more. That's another reason. And there's all kinds of things, and that's not my purpose today, but one of the reasons is is that you become a comforter. <laughs> Who here has had a parent die? Yeah, you've had a parent die. Right? And some of you are younger and haven't had that happen yet, but there's something that happens for you when a parent dies. I don't know how to explain it to you other than you know instantly that you can identify with others who've had parents die, right? You become a comforter in the very thing that was a source of pain for you. God redeems it. Are you seeing it? So I want you to see something. One of the most sacred, beautiful things that God assigns to us is to go and be a comforter to others. It's a sacred, holy assignment. It's beautiful. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it'd be a cup of soup. Maybe it'd be a letter. Maybe it'd be a call. Maybe it'd be a visit. Maybe it'd be a hug. I don't know. Uh, maybe it'd be uh, at the appropriate time then sharing the gospel. But whatever. It's a holy assignment. You're gonna, you, you see the purpose of pain. And he praises God that he's gone through it so he can comfort others. Did you catch that? He's praising God. For as the sufferings of Christ, look at this, verse 5, abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through us. Now, I don't think he's talking necessarily about physical sufferings here, physical sufferings that are caused because you live in a world that's breaking down, that's sinful. You live in a world where disease and death occur because of the fall. And so there's going to be times when, you know, you walk into the doctor and he says you're going to have to get a five-way bypass or there's cancer or whatever. And I'm not necessarily thinking he's talking uh, here about physical sufferings, but what he probably is talking about right here in verse 5 is because you follow and surrender your life to the Lord, there are going to come times when you suffer. For instance, go on uh, regular TV, give them your address, your phone number, your email, and say you believe in traditional marriage, according to the Bible. Right? A lot of things could be stripped from you after that interview. 
like jobs. I mean, we live in cancel culture. Suffering for Christ, maybe, uh, you know, going in one direction in your, your career, it would have advanced you uh, uh, monetarily a different way, but now you've sort of taken a, a different way, and you're just living your life full out for Christ, and, you know, uh, you're, you're receiving scorn and derision from those who you uh, uh, share with, and I think that's what he's talking about. And he says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, uh, you know, think about it. What, what happened for Christ? He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He, he was a person that was misunderstood. Uh, I mean, they called him a, a demoniac and a, a, a drunk. <laughs> and, and, you know, his very friends, I'm not too critical on them because I might have been one of them, but the very friends that he shared life with for three years at the time in which he needed them the most at the cross were gone except one. They deserted him. He, he knows suffering for, for God and God's will. And he's saying when that happens for you, when the sufferings of Christ abound in us, watch this, that's when God consoles. You'll know the consolation and the comfort of a God who cares for you. And they're going to abound, and that's a praise for you. Now, if we are afflicted, it says there in verse 6, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. There's another word that you and I should know in the Greek. It's called hupomone. This isn't passive endurance. You get this? In enduring there. It says that when we're in suffering, we're going to endure to the end. We're going to endure. And that word is hupomone. It's not this like passive thing where you're receiving all this bad stuff. I want you to see this. People in suffering as Christians, watch this. They hupomone. They eagerly anticipate all that, watch, all that God has for them in the suffering. And so they're searching the scriptures and sitting down to pen a praise. They're showing up the church with voices that cry out to the Lord and they're serving with zeal and tenderness and abandon because in the middle, God's given them endurance, hupomone. They're not just receiving the bad stuff, they're thriving in the suffering. That's what that's saying. Now, if we're afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. And by the way, I read to you some of the things that they were going through. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. You see how content he is? If we're afflicted, if we're, that, that word means, it's like this. It's, like, it's a boa constrictor type of word. You feel like you're just being strangled or everything's being pressed together. That's what that word is. If you're that, that's because you're enduring. Keep in there. Uh, uh, keep searching out the Lord. Keep spending time with the Lord. Keep near to the Lord. But if you're comforted, that's good too. But in either way, it's for your consolation and salvation. God's going to use it in your spiritual journey both ways. What does Paul say? I've learned, Paul says, no matter what, whether I have tons of things going great in my life 
circumstantially or have terrible things going in my life, going on in my life circumstantially, I know how to be content. Paul could live like that, and that's what he's saying. This is a praise. Do you get this? This is a praise that we don't have to live according to our circumstances. That's what Paul's saying here. And our hope for you, verse 7, is steadfast because we know that as you that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. Here is a doxology of praise that comes in the midst of very hard, difficult, life-felt, important things. And Paul sits down and praises God for all of them. Wow. That can help you and I to remember who God is in praise in the middle of very difficult circumstances. Do that. What else happens? Or what else does he say? He says in verse 8, For we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We don't know exactly what he's talking about there, but remember there's a, some things that were pretty, pretty uh, devastating. He talks about there were beasts, in Ephesus, fighting with wild beasts. Remember I read to you, he suffered 39 stripes. There was a riot at Ephesus. He was involved in persecutions that were significant. And he also had a recurring physical malady that you know about. Probably an eye problem, but maybe something else. Our trouble which came to us in Asia that we were burdened beyond measure. In other words, this was significant. Above strength, I want you to catch this. Do you see how raw and real Paul is? Probably upset somebody right here. You know know when people say, um, because it says here, so that we despaired even of life. Paul's pretty down there, folks. He's in despair. And he admits it. You know when people say God doesn't give you more than you can handle? I'm not so sure about that one. I know what people are referring to. They're referring to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in which he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now hold on if you're shocked by what I just said. See, that verse is talking about God isn't going to give you more than you can handle in terms of temptation. Would you agree? Yes. And you say, well, wait a minute. God's going to give me more than I can handle? I don't know if I'm signing up for this. But you've got to keep reading. Is there anybody here that felt like life was just overwhelming and you couldn't even breathe? And it was just one thing upon the next, one thing upon the next, right? But watch this. Before you despair... If you're shocked by what I just said, don't hold on for one second. Because he says, man, I despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. I mean, this is pretty significant. But, but here's the point. So in one sense, I would say, I'm not sure I agree with that statement. God doesn't give you more than he can handle. I'm not sure I agree with that. And yet in another sense, it's true. And here's why. Because when you recognize that you can't handle things yourself and you're driven to God 
by Jesus Christ, you actually get all you need to be content and live and thrive. Do you catch what I'm saying? Because here Paul says, oh my gosh, I had a sentence of death in myself. I was despair. I mean, even unto to life and death, yet we had this sentence that we shouldn't, but, but God was directing us that we shouldn't trust in ourselves, and then, but in God who raises the dead. Why do you think he wrote that? Because here you got a circumstance, think about it, of a church he poured into that's rebelling, some of them, against him. It's hurtful. He's got all these different things, stripes, riots, persecutions, all these different things. And you know, you would be tempted in your human flesh to say what? Do I really want to put up with all this? And he's like, man, is it, what, what is all this? I'm suffering for Christ. But then he found out something, and maybe you should circle this or highlight this. God wants you to come to the end of your own self, your self-confidence, your self-esteem. Oops, I said it. You should be esteemed highly in Christ, but not yourself. I know that's bad to say in this world or not popular to say. Should you have a right view of who you are? Yes, you're a sinner saved by grace who now is a child of the king. That's who you are. But what we do sometimes, I've admitted it up here, I trust in my own abilities and strength to do my job. And I just sort of leave God out of it because, you know, I've done this for 30 years. God says, no, that we're not to trust in ourselves. We're to die daily to ourself, pick up our cross, and trust in God. And then he just writes, who raises the dead. He, why do you think he put that in there? Because he's saying, the resurrection power with which I raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can handle the situation in Corinth. Boy, does that give a different perspective to your life. Oh my gosh, I'm worried about the bonus. Am I going to get the pool or not get the pool? I mean, I really want the, the gold rims on the car, but I don't want the standard things. Come on, Lord, help. I need those new Nikes, but they're 200, not 150, or, or whatever. <laughs> now, Paul's saying, listen, when you get to the end of yourselves, there's God with all the power you've ever needed for life and godliness. The problem for us is, will we submit to that or will we rebel? Will we lay, our, uh, lay ourselves down and pick up our cross or will we be rebellious? Will we submit or we will, will we rebel? He delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. That's fascinating. I don't think I'm going to have time today to go through that, but watch that. What has God done for us? He's taken care of the past. He's taken care of the present. And he's taken care of the future. Does deliver, uh, still deliver, right? <laughs> uh, helping us, and you also, verse 11 here, helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. I want you to see something here. The prayers of the other people. Paul wasn't too big uh, to ask for prayers, by the way, 
But secondly, the prayers of the people buffeted him and his team. Did you catch that? The corporate prayer time here, man. Important stuff. Your prayers, the prayers of the saints, buffet everybody. Now, watch this. He shifts gears a little bit. Verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that thing that God puts in you that helps you to discern with him by the power of the Holy Spirit the things that are right and wrong. Our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world. Watch, how how are we to live as ministers of the gospel? All of you are, if you're in Christ. In simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. I want you to see something since we're the second day of the year and you're going to get day by day by grace and you're going to go through it this year. The grace of God enables you to live a life of simplicity and godly sincerity, which means that you live your life, watch this, in the light. Would you be, open to, uh, be able to open up your entire life for all the church to see? Well, God sees it. And he wants you to live in simplicity and godly sincerity, and God gives you the, uh, the grace to do that. And he, he does it abundantly, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now, I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also of you understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours, watch this, in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's saying right there, we can live in the light. You can know about me, and I can know about you, because we're in the body of Christ, and we can boast about your life. You're a sinner saved by grace. Now you're a child of the King, and you're living it out. Oh, do you have failures and struggles and sin? Of course, but you confess your sin, and you keep moving towards God, and the Holy Spirit just keeps working and drawing and uh, uh, comforting and, and teaching and guiding and conforming you to the image of His Son, and that's what we're doing, and we're just living it all out in the light. Why are we doing that? Because the Lord Jesus is coming. And we know it. And this life isn't just about the paycheck and the hobbies and the white picket fence and the vacations. It's about laying it all out for the Lord. And that's how we live our lives. We live our lives in the light. And in this confidence, verse 15, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. There it is right there to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? See, here's what he's getting at. He's now starting to address what the people are saying about him. You told me you'd come, man. You didn't come. You didn't attend. You didn't come to the church. I can't believe you. You're not a man of your word. What kind of Christian are you? You ever heard somebody say that to you? That feels good, doesn't it? What kind of Christian are you? Wait a minute. I just gave my whole life for this church, not me, Paul. Yeah, but you told me you were coming. That's what he's addressing here. But as God is faithful, verse 18, our word to you was not yes and no. He's saying, I planned this out. I prayed about it. I thought about it. I thought I was going to come, but God changed my plans. 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit our, uh, uh, in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, I'm going to finish on this. You guys are like, wow, good, that's early, man. But I want you to see something here. He's saying here, listen, I prayed about it, and these, this is where the Lord lead me. But, but don't just always just trust in people. People are fallible. They're not infallible. And they're going to make mistakes. And you're going to perceive something that might have been right by the Lord but didn't seem right to you. And there's going to be misunderstandings. And there's going to be things that set you back. And there are going to be hurts and struggles, maybe unintentionally. But, you know, there's going to be those things. But if you don't get it, that God's promises through Jesus Christ are dead rock solid. They never will change. And you can always count on them, just as they say, you don't really get it. He's saying, listen, right, you're perceiving this. I wasn't wrong. I prayed about it, and the Lord changed my plans. But, you know, you're hurt and slighted. Listen, focus on the Lord. That's, that's interesting, because in my tendency, in some of my training, I would have really defended myself right there. He says, listen... Let's just focus on the Lord and his promises. Now, here's another thing I want to tell you about this. All the promises of God in him are yes. In Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are a go. They're available to us. We can access them and count on them and stand in them and move in them and work in them and, and go to school in them and, and live in them. We can live in all of them. God wants us to live right there in the promise of God. They're all yes by God. Yes, a go. Houston, it's a go. But watch this. It's amazing to me. But you have to be willing to say amen to them. So be it. What do I mean? Well, how about this one? How about the promises that if you forgive others, God will forgive you? How about that one? Now, I understand if you read the whole Bible, it's not a do something to get something. But clearly, the Bible is calling us to be forgivers. In fact, right, one of the famous followers of Christ said, hey, Lord, I know you want us to be forgivers, so how about we forgive seven times the number of perfection? I know if I say seven, he'll agree with me. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You ought to be a forgiver seven times 70. In other words, always ready to forgive. Why am I going into this? Here's why. Because all the promises of a God are yes, they're a go. But you have to say amen to them. <laughs> almost everybody I ever have in my office talking about a slight with somebody else, it's almost to a person. They come and they say, you know, got this thing with this person and da-da-da-da-da, and you say, oh, okay. So did you go talk to them? No. Well, 
what does the Bible say we're to do? Um, well, to forgive him. And I say, well, are you, are you going to forgive him? And then it, here it comes. I say this all the time. I mean, I may know it's coming. Here it comes. Two words, one's a contraction. I can't. And you go, well, wait a second. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Or maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Well, I can't. You don't know what my dad did to me or my boyfriend did to me or, or whatever. You, you just don't know. You, I, I can't. Well, see, you haven't done what God said in his word. All the promises of God are, yes, be a forgiver, but you have to be, so be it. You have to say amen to them if you want the right? And even in that example, in that example, what about this? Those examples, or that example of unforgiveness or forgiveness saying yes to what God has to you helps you to be a person who lives in the light. You're not hiding anything. You ever talk to somebody about a grudge they're holding? They're real hush-hush about it. Or maybe it's not um, unforgiveness. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe you're lonely and you say, well, where's God in all of this? Why isn't God treating me right? Why am I so lonely? Well, here's the, the deal. The Bible says that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise, but you got to say yes to it. Yes, Lord, I understand. Now, help me. To not feel lonely because you've told me this and it's a, it's a promise. And then what do, uh, and I'm not bashing people who are lonely, trust me. I understand it's a real thing and it's a very definite pull. When people get lonely, what do they tend to want to do? Get by themselves. And I understand that. And yet the Bible says, no, no, come and be with the saints so you won't be lonely. You see it? But you got to say yes. You say, well, God, you're not helping me. God's saying, yeah, or you've got to say amen. God's saying yes, but have you said amen? I'm not picking on the lonely, by the way. I'm just trying to make some examples. What a beautiful thing. The Lord's given us here. Uh, and, and the one big one that I think about when I read this scripture is, you're to, you and I and me, and especially me, and I think about it for my own life, is I'm to take up my cross daily. I'm to die to myself more and more and more and die to self and have God increase in my life. And sometimes, you know what I say? No. No amen, whatever that is. Well, we'll look at this and we'll finish. He's anointed us. You know this, that he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God. Do you know that all of us are anointed folks? I understand when people say there's a special anointing, but really all of you are anointed by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. What, what would happen in the Old Testament? Kings, prophets, and priests would get... Um, you know, have oil or, you know, the instruments that they use in the tabernacle would have oil. What were they just doing? What were they signifying? They were being set apart for service. Each one of you are anointed. You're set apart for service by the Holy Spirit. He sealed us then. That's beautiful. Just take that in. Know this and I'll quit. 
God has sealed you by the Holy Spirit. Watch, when somebody sealed you in the ancient times, like if I sealed a package, a cargo ship across the Mediterranean, I'd put my seal on there so that when they uh, opened it up on the other side, they knew that I owned it and it was coming from me. When God it says that God has sealed us, it means he's put his stamp on you. You belong to him in a good way. And you have security and peace there and access. That's just beautiful. And given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, a down payment. You could look at that in Ephesians 1 also. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. And I want you to see that. See, Paul in this letter is going to have to do some rebuking, but he's also doing a lot of encouraging and praising. But he wants you to know in the thing that he's been called as a shepherd, and the people here at Calvary Chapel or another church that you go, our job isn't to lord things over on you. Not to have you think and believe exactly the way I do or others do. What we're to do, though, is to be workers that help you cultivate your joy. That's what it says right there. For by faith you stand. You stand by faith. I don't stand for you. You stand. And what we're trying to do here is to be, make you people who are full of joy. By the way, in that same chapter, John 16, as we close, pretty sure it's in 16, Jesus tells us that he won't replace our sorrow with joy. Never forget this. He'll turn your sorrow into joy, and that's a big difference. Well, listen, as we move out of here, I want you to uh, think and feel and uh, recognize you might be in an overwhelming, distressing, difficult situation, whether it be at work or another person or a group of people or whatever. What are we to do? To sit down and figure out, or not figure out, to praise the Lord for who he is. To live your life in such a way that you're in the light. To care for the other people, even the ones who are speaking against you. And to have relational courage as supplied by the Holy Spirit. Because if he promises something in his yes, we're to be people who gob onto it and say, we agree. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks so much for this day, and thank you for uh, your word, and uh, uh, boy, just powerful here on the first day of the month, or the, yeah, the first day of the year, and uh, Lord, help us to live these things out by your grace and mercy, by your power, resurrection power. We love you, but we know it's because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.